Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely of the R Street Institute. I'm Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Join us for some banner on policy, society, and innovation. In other words, whatever we feel like talking about. This is our first episode, so we clearly don't know what we're doing, but that's never stopped us before. Today, we're going to talk with the illustrious Shoshana Weissman, my colleague at the R Street Institute. Uh, We discuss occupational licensing, urban politics, the recent Supreme Court nomination, and whether her voice really sounds like that. All right. We are here with Shoshana Weissman, who is the digital media specialist for the R Street Institute. Also has a side hustle selling branded Mitch McConnell clothing. Welcome. Yay, thanks for having me. So Doug and I don't really know what we're doing, uh, but we do know that we want to talk about occupational licensing. Uh, Also want to get to the Supreme Court nomination later but let's start with occupational licensing why occupational licensing threat or menace oh my gosh it's just the worst thing ever like the the stories i hear about how it functions is just insane it drives me up a wall like by now like everyone i've met in my entire life has heard the story of the florist who um couldn't get a license to be a florist because it was too dangerous in Louisiana, so you need to have a license, which is insane. Um, and she, when she died, she died alone and in poverty because she couldn't get a government license to be a florist. Like, that's insane. It drives me up a wall. Um, so it just, it, it's just so unbelievably horrible. And when you hear about these stories for the first time, oh, my gosh, you're just like, this is happening in America. So... Um, so I think it's worse than like a menace. It's just like satanic. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I think most people, when they think of occupational licensing, in my experience, their mind goes straight to the the doctor or the lawyer or something like that, where a lot of people might think, okay, it, it makes sense to have a license to require a license for that. I, I'm an extremist. Maybe not. Maybe not me. Do we really need licenses for brain surgery? But for most people, they think, oh yeah, that's fine. But then when you start listing off some of the careers that actually are licensed, you know, decorators or whatever, uh, it, it gets pretty ridiculous pretty fast. Yeah. And like, so there's a bunch of sides to it. There's like, why the heck are we licensing these things? So that includes things like hair braiders need a license. Um, in some states, blow dryers. Again, florists is up there. Fortune tellers, because you wouldn't want a defective fortune teller. Auctioneers, like all these things that it's like, why in the world does this need a license? Um, So that's one side of it. And then there's times when it's like, you might understand why these things need to be licensed, but the requirements are just so overdone. Um, Sometimes uh, plumbers need way more hours than is useful for them. Um, Other more technical hands-on blue collar jobs fall into that category. And then I think the last category is like doctors and lawyers. Like, of course you want your brain surgeon to have a license, but um, but maybe your nurse is able to do a little bit more than than doctors allow her to because there's a lot of you know all of this boils down to like 
um, economic protectionism. So doctors don't want nurses to encroach on them. So there is room to expand what nurses do, expand what paralegals do, and even maybe make a category below paralegals where they can do a little bit more. Um, So so those are kind of the three categories. The this is stupid, I get this, but this is too much. And the like, I totally get this, but we should we should expand the opportunity a little bit more. Uh, let's not get crazy here. I'm a, I'm a lawyer by trade, and you know we don't want to we don't want just anybody doing what I do. Uh, I mean, I'm all for a free market for everybody else, but maybe not for lawyers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, there's so much legal work too that um that you know you want someone who's familiar with it to be doing it. But, uh, you know, in my opinion, you don't need a lawyer to do it. Like, and that, that falls under certain kinds of documents and a little bit like kind of like legal zooms area. Like some of that stuff, okay. I would be totally cool if a non-lawyer did it, just someone who knew more about it than I do. Um, paralegals. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely room to expand there. And, and you know, the, the medical field, the legal field, and there's a handful of others that kind of fall into that where we can really – Lower the the cost to um, the cost of access to uh, to justice and to medicine. Um, telemedicine is kind of bringing that to light because like there's all these online tools for um, for measuring uh, for measuring your eyes and figuring out what kind of glasses you need. And optometrists get mad at that. So there's um, th- there's a whole world there that I think is going to explode soon, and I'm excited to see it all burn down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And the thing that I think. You know, the typical justification for these licensing, why do you have to require licenses? It's, you know, public public safety, right? People are going to get hurt. You know, the quality of the service will improve if you have the license. And very often it seems the evidence is, no, actually you don't get any improved service by requiring a doctor to do something as opposed to a, a nurse or a, a dentist as opposed to a hygienist or a, a, a lot of states... Yeah, a lot of occupations might be licensed in one state, not licensed, not there. There isn't a required license in the neighboring state, and it's not like the neighboring state is is some sort of uh, hellhole. Uh, so the, the the main thing that it seems to do is I- increase the cost of the service, which is pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not. If you're a practitioner, maybe it's pretty good. Uh, but for society, it's not so great. Yeah, so, exactly. I was nope. going to say, even as an attorney, that that you know that cut, cuts both ways for me. Um, I do a lot of international business, but I'm technically I'm only uh, licensed in the state of Texas. So if I have clients doing business in other states, then it you know I have to worry about am I uh, am I lawfully doing business uh, practicing law in another state? So I mean, it even affects us that actually have a license. Yeah, yeah that's right. No, yeah, it's it's really confusing here because there you know there's. I sometimes think, do we even need a license to be a lawyer? Like, should that even be required? But yeah, I'm uncomfortable with it for now. But I, I would love to see experiments. Like, what happened if you stopped requiring a license for this part of law? Or um, even, you know, not really medicine, but for, for certain more skilled professions where um, where life or, um, or is in danger, you know, whether it's health safety or even, I guess, financial safety to a level. I'd be interested to see what happened if we stopped licensing. And that's a really good comparison, too, because um, doctors and lawyers are licensed in every state. So experimentation there is a little bit harder. But for most other professions, I, um, there's it's not licensed in every state. So, like, hair braiders aren't licensed in every state. And in all these cases, you see everyone's doing fine when there's no license required for various things, whether it's, you know, hair, people who deal with hair and makeup or, um, or you know, certain kinds of contractors. 
um, it, it really is a good example of like, just look at how other states handle it. Look at the various rates of anything related to health and safety. And you'll see that there's not really a difference. I mean, I'm all for like health inspection checks. So like, yeah, if you're, um, if you're a manicurist and like everything's really dirty and people are getting sick, the health inspector should come, but you don't need a license for that. It's just like a, a normal checkup type thing. Um, or if someone calls in a complaint, you know, maybe the, the health inspector is like, hey, we got a report of something happening here. Um, but it, that it's licensing is really one of those areas where you can see what's working in states and what's not and if it's dangerous to delicense something or not. So I, I know that this is an area that you're very passionate about. In the in the age of Trump, how do you get other people excited about occupational licensing? Is that sort of an uphill battle or are you finding people receptive to, to having this conversation? Very much the latter. I always thought it was going to be a harder thing, especially with Trump and like you know, branding conservatism so badly, but people get it and people are like, hey, this is this is not good. Um, and you get about the same proportion of liberals and conservatives for and against it. I'd say close to 90% of conservatives and liberals are pretty much with me on all this stuff. And then there's like a five to 10% who think that like, I just want to burn down all protections for health and safety. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's totally what I'm going to do. Um, but it's, um, it's kind of interesting to see that the, the thought process for both sides is pretty much the same. Um, conservatives are a little more into regulatory reform and, um, you know, liberals are a little more into fields, but there's there's definitely a lot of similarity on both sides. And a lot of people like that it's an issue where everyone can come together. Um, you don't really get much of that nowadays. So it's like, hey, not everything has to be terrible. And, you know, as polarized as things are, even the, the polarized people kind of like that. Yeah, my, my general view is that if you were able to do something, uh, provide a service for somebody uh, for free, uh, then it doesn't make sense to require a, a license for it. So, for example, if if my wife wanted to cut my hair, she could do that. There's no licensing requirement. But if she wanted to open a, a barber shop, it's a different different story. Like uh, on the other hand, she would not be able to even just as a favor to me perform open heart surgery on me. Uh, so, so th- you know that 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 might be one one line. Well, I don't know because uh, you know we we just passed right to try. So perhaps if you want to try that, maybe she could. Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe. I uh, love that. Oh man, I love right to try. Goldwater has been killing on that. No, no, really messed up pun intended there. But they've, <laughs> they've really been doing awesome work there. Um, I'm excited about like allowing experimentation and like I, I totally get that health and safety is important, but right to try is super super important. And I, I worry that sometimes our our excessive concern about health and safety throws the baby out with the bathwater, where we we stop that area for experimentation. Again, like right to try is a perfect example of a good thing and and not doing the the excessiveness. Mm-hmm. So and then so, go ahead. Oh, I was just I was just going to add that there are. So there are some things like the florists uh, or the interior decorators or whatever, where I think the answer is just uh, you don't need anything. What are you going to replace? You're going to get rid of the license, replace it with nothing. If there are situations where people are a little squeamish about health and safety, there are less intrusive alternatives to licensing that you could do. You could do certification, right, which is kind of like licensing, except that it's not mandatory you can still do it without the certification but people you know are going to kind of wonder like why am i going to this guy uh who doesn't have a degree in whatever it is uh you could also require bonding maybe so there's other things you can do there's alternatives 
Yeah. There's, there's actually a lot of steps before you get to licensing, whether, you know, I still don't love permits, but sometimes that's a good solution or, um, or, or various other forms of, um, of kind of making sure everything's okay. And the just licensing tends to be so onerous. And the way it's used, like a really good example is with Louisiana florists. Um, I don't remember how recent this data is, but it's within the past decade, um, I think, the, if not the past two decades. Um, the, the pass rate for the Louisiana florist exam was lower than, than it was for the, the Louisiana bar exam. So it's easier to become a lawyer in Louisiana than a florist. And that's because uh, it's um, licensed florists who judge work of floral art. And like, if they don't like it, you don't pass. Now that part isn't there anymore, but that just tells you everything you need to know about this stuff. And, um, and a lot of us grow up not questioning authority because we're like, well, you know, we have to protect health and safety, but we need to do better with questioning it. And I used to be bad with this until I got into this stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, government has no idea what it's doing a weird amount of the time. And it's just like saying stuff and like not thinking through or intentionally like helping out industry insiders. And it's super, super weird in itself that like florists in Louisiana are a big lobby, but like, I mean, like the catfish lobby is a thing. So I guess it shouldn't be that surprising. (laughs) There's a lobby for everything. It really is. So one last issue that I wanted to touch on uh, before we move on to to other stuff, perhaps. But so we talked about should certain professions be licensed or should they not be licensed or what's the alternatives or whatever. There are also some kind of subsidiary concerns uh, that crop up. So you recently put out a report that looked at states uh, that suspend licenses based on the people being in student loan default could you could you explain a little bit about that yeah so um for a long time i've known that if people don't pay certain like court fees um or if they fall behind on um on a child payments that like sometimes their driver's license is revoked which is stupid because if they can't afford those payments take away their ability to, to drive places so they can get to work like that's messed up but um I found out a couple of months ago and we and at our street, we just did a paper on it and a USA Today op-ed in um, when we wrote it, it was 19 states. Now it's down to 18. And um, and there's actually legislation through uh, senators Warren and Rubio to fix. But in, in 18 states currently, if you fall behind on student loans, government can take away your license to work. So if you can't pay your loans, they're going to literally just stop you from working. And of course, you can get other jobs. But if you're a nurse and you lose, and it happens to nurses and teachers a lot, um, and you you can't do that anymore, you can't do the job you know best. Your salary is going to be lower, most likely, um, which is terrible. I mean, so it's going to make it harder for you to to work to regain that stuff. Um, and it's just it's it's really sick. It's just it's just an impossible task for them. Um, and, and in one of the cases, the New York Times did a big expose on this. There was a woman who had who started getting seizures and she couldn't work because of it. And because she couldn't work, she couldn't pay her student loans. And by the time she could, they had taken away her license and she couldn't afford to get her license back because she would have had to pay to do that. It's insane. And of course, we should use every tool to make sure that people who can pay and who aren't sick are paying. So like, I'm totally fine with wage garnishment and other tools that actually get those loans paid back. But this doesn't do that. This just takes away their ability to repay loans. So it hurts lenders. It hurts other people. I mean, it's just it hurts everyone. Like I, it's a terrible idea. Um, and it, it's kind of the Department of Education's fault. In the 90s, 
because they're like, hey, how about you take away their license to work if they're not repaying loans? And about 22 or so states did that. Thankfully, some states have been getting rid of these laws, but it's, it's hurting lots of people. And I think that one thing other people don't understand is that there's a shortage of teachers and nurses, and those are the professions it's happening to, like a lot, like thousands of cases of this. So we have a rural health crisis, and we're stopping nurses from working. It's insane. Yeah, I think Texas is one of those 18 states, I It believe. is. Yeah, yeah. There, there's been some uh, proposals to fix that next year when the legislature comes back. Hopefully, hopefully they will, because that, that just seems, whatever you think about licensing in general, the idea that you someone's not paying their bills, so you're going to make it so they can't have a job to pay their bill, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, it's terrible. And it's like, I mean, government's really, 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 really stupid a lot, but like this is like peak government. So do, you know, occupational licensing reform is important in its own right, but do you find that maybe this is a bit of a gateway drug into other issues of you know free market freedoms, you know economic freedoms, and other other liberty issues that maybe it opens people's minds a little bit? Oh, totally. It's um it's a really good gateway drug. I have people tweeting me all the time like. Um, hey, I followed you for the Slavs, and now I'm libertarian. What happened? <laughs> and it's it's really exciting to see that. But I think this is one of those issues that kind of hits all the right notes for most people, um, or at least one note for for every person. So once they get into it, they're like, oh, we get why you care about economic liberty now. So um, so sometimes it's when I talk about the courts, people start to get it. Other forms of rent seeking, um, just economic liberty more generally. It, it turns people onto it because they kind of start to see all the problems that can happen. Um, and it's really nice. Like, I love I love being a liberal's gateway to, to libertarianism and even conservative's gateway to a little bit more libertarianism. And um, it's, it's nice to get people coming together on something that should just be common sense. Right. Well, you've, you've mentioned conservatives and libertarians, and that kind of, I think, leads to uh, the next topic that we wanted to turn to. Why can't they win in cities? Oh, my gosh. There's so many reasons. There's... Um, <laughs> Gosh, I could write a book. Go for it. I've been working on this a long time because um, growing up in Nassau County, where I started in politics, people always said, oh, liberals don't want us in cities. Uh, Cities are full of liberals, and that's why we don't win, or um, our ideas don't work in cities. And I'm like, none of this makes any sense. So I actually looked into it, and I've read so many articles and papers and look through the data, and a lot of it's pretty clear, it's straightforward. The reason we don't win in cities is because we don't try. We go into cities and we're like, hey, who hates Obamacare? And they're like, there's homeless people on our streets and like, I can't get a job. And they're like, but like Obamacare is bad, right? So you're not, you're not gonna win people with that. Republicans know when we go into rural areas, you talk about farms and farming communities and the issues that face them locally. We just need to do that in cities and say, hey, here's the problems in our community. Um, here's how I would fix them using my ideas. And it's not about leading with being a Republican, but using Republican and conservative ideas um, just because they're good, like common sense, good governance stuff. Um, so that's one big part of it. And also, even the, the candidates who do get it, there's too few of them, but they are out there. Um, donors don't want to fund them because they're like, oh, this guy's never going to win. And that's true a lot of times, but you got to try and you got to make those inroads. I mean, um, San Diego has a Republican mayor and like Mayor McCornett in Oklahoma City, even though it's a little more red, there's a lot of blue there. and He's been doing great. Um, Texas has a lot of conservative mayors, um, but we, we need more of that. We need more like 
even though I don't agree with Giuliani on much these days, we need a Giuliani type who's like, here's the problems facing our city and here's how we handle them. And honestly, Democrats have the same problem. They run super tone deaf campaigns in rural areas, but they have the upper hand because rural areas are shrinking and cities are growing. Um, there's also a direct relationship between population density and voting patterns. Um, red turns to blue at 800 people per square mile. Um, there's a graph that showed that. And um, if you overlay a voting map, it looks like a population density map. Um, there's lots of other things that go into it, the philosophy behind modern day republicanism more than conservatism, um, where people think that cities are home to like all of society's ills. But there's a lot of data to contradict that. And we just need to like stop, you know, complaining about like liberals and cities and start being like, hey, you like Uber, that's capitalism. And like, here's other things it can do. So it, it's just about going in, um, being real, showing up, showing you care, coming with solutions and like having done your research before you got there, but also like being willing to listen. It's just like running a good campaign. It's all those things that we just like forget how to do when we go into cities. Okay, but but you've got a libertarian streak, and if you've got millions of people stacked up on each other, doesn't it make sense that with that many people, there's going to be so many more problems, and there's going to need to be more regulations, more rules, than you know, if you have a small population in a city, is that part of the, the struggle that we face? That's definitely a, a part of it, and that's kind of where good governance conservatives come in, like, just like, going into cities and figuring out how to use minimal government, but not non-existent government, like use it where it makes sense without restricting liberty. Um, but it, when people are on top of each other, you know, like maybe in the country you can go out and shoot guns and like have fun on your farm and like do cool stuff there, but that's not possible in cities. And like, there's, there's a lot of things like that, that you have to adapt. You have to be um, really smart about water infrastructure, which is something our street works on. Um, just like, Figuring, I mean, it sounds silly, and I know it's the old libertarian thing of, oh, who will build the roads and bridges? But really, you have to think about how that's going to function in cities and um, and all that kind of infrastructure. And there's a, even um, when it comes to, like, sidewalk permits, you have to think through that. Um, and I, I tend to agree with the libertarian philosophies of let people build where they want, um, let more apartments be built so that rent will go down all that kind of stuff. But I think you just have to go in and really make the case for it and do research and be honest. If government has a role a little bit more in cities, that's okay. Like that's what government's there for. Um, but also to do it without being oppressive. So uh, did, did anything big happen this week? Like how crazy is it? We're getting another justice. Top pick is always justice. Don Willette. your guys, this guy, I adore him. <laughs> he's the perfect, like he's perfect. He's exactly with me on all jurisprudence. And, like, the Twitter thing is cool, and a lot of people think that's why I like him. And I like it, but, I mean, he's a super nice guy, brilliant jurist. I just obsess. I love him. I talk to him all the time, and he puts up with my nerding and stuff. Um, I just, I adore him. But um, if we can't get him, ugh, I'll, I would deal <laughs> with Kethledge. Like, he's, Kethledge was awesome. Um, I, I'm just a lot more, a lot closer to him. I like Kavanaugh, though. He's, like, par for the course. Like, there's some something to, like... For everyone like he's not he's like against chevron deference um he's like a pretty normal conservative justice which is why it's like so funny for me to be like to see all the people being like oh he's such an extremist i'm like bro he's like super normal um he's not gonna replace gorsuch as my number one bay on the court but he's good you know 
Well, so Ilya was on, Ilya Shapiro was on uh, The Remnant recently, and they were talking about Kennedy. And he made the point that even though Kennedy's jurisprudence was definitely different than, say, Cato's jurisprudence, that a lot of times Kennedy sort of fell into the result that, uh, that say, Ilya or Cato were hoping for. Do you think that uh, Kavanaugh might be uh, maybe less favorable to a, in at least in terms of the result, if not the jurisprudence, to a, sort of the libertarian or sort of conservatarian viewpoint? You know, I really, I really don't think he's focused on outcomes. I think there, there are a couple of justices who I think are, but I think he's just going to be more deferential than I would like, which like, to me, that makes me really sad, but I know that that makes him like a normal justice. Like he's, he's, I, I think he'll be better than some of the justices as far as like not putting himself into these decisions and just going for the jurisprudence. But um, from a libertarian legal perspective, I mean, like he's not Gorsuch, he's not Willett, um, he's not this new just judge I found in Wisconsin who like cited Randy Barnett three times, and I'm like super in love with her right now. Um, but he's like a normal justice. Like it's uh, again, I'm just disappointed because like. I, my hopes were set so high by Gorsuch because he loves the Ninth Amendment that, like, unless it's Randy Barnett, I'm not going to be thrilled. <laughs> like, it has to be Randy Barnett for me to be super happy. So I'm like, all right, I'll take him if that makes sense. But but you, I think you described him as Kevin Naughty. Tell us what you meant by that. Um. Oh, what was that? Oh yeah, I was just dad punning. Like, um, all our guesses for who would be the justice. I, you know, Trump decided it was all for Kavanaugh. Um, I'm just looking for ways to pun him because, like, it's going to be a rough few months if we don't meme the hell out of us. Mm-hmm. Did you have a favorite, Doug? Not really. Um, unlike the two of you, I actually have to work for a living. So uh, as much <laughs> as I would have liked to sit around and read, you know, decades of jurisprudence from each one of these people, um, no, I mean, what I did is I just ended up going to certain scholars that I like, Barnett, Ilya, uh, certain people like that, uh, David French, just to kind of get an idea of, of who they were pulling for. But realistically, I didn't have the time to, to, to do much more than to try to uh, do the, the rule of thumb. If, you know, if, if they were you know, trying to identify who are they most like on the, uh, on the Supreme Court, but I realize that's, uh, that's no substitute for actually understanding their jurisprudence. Yeah, that's a really good point. And everyone's like jumping and yelling, and it's like, have you read one decision? Like, bro. <laughs> Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about conservative uh, college activism. Um, you and other uh, conservative and libertarian uh, commentators have been very critical of uh, Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk. Um, I think there's a real argument that their um, their recent activities haven't been particularly helpful to the conservative movement. And that prompted a conversation last week on, on Twitter about uh, the so-called Reagan um, 11th commandment, the idea that other uh, that Republicans shouldn't be criticizing other Republicans, or in this case, conservatives shouldn't be uh, criticizing uh, other conservatives. Do you think that applies to somebody like uh, Charlie Kirk? And uh, what what's your view overall about this idea of uh, Reagan's 11th commandment? You know, people talk a lot about Reagan's 11th commandment. Um, it's it's wrong. It's just wrong. Like, I mean, anyone who's being intellectually honest, you know, criticize them kindly, but be, be, you know, be, be, don't be a dick about it. Like, just don't be a dick. Um, but, um, when there's people who are just, you know, there to make money, the hucksters, hell yes, call them out because those people are hurting our movement. Charlie Kirk doesn't help our movement. He hurts it. Um, he doesn't 
create, he doesn't work towards good legislation. He doesn't mobilize students to do good things. He owns the libs by getting people to wear diapers. Like, what the heck? Um, so criticize him and criticize the hucksters, but really always try to see, you know, be, give it an honest eye. Um, a lot of people think we shouldn't criticize our people because it, hurt, it hurts us, but the true case is it's the opposite. If we don't criticize our own people, they're not going to be stronger. They're going to be lots of, um, you know, lots of grifters in the movement. So by yeah. criticizing, you make it stronger. Just like think about how you raise your kids. You're going to criticize your kids a lot more than you're going to criti criticize other people's kids. And it's because you want the best for your kids and you want them to be the best they can. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean to do things that will hurt them, but just make them stronger, make them prove their cases and, um, and you know, argue on ideas and go back and forth. But when there's hucksters, say, hey, this person's just a grifter. Stop paying attention to them. Yeah, and no, I agree with that. I uh, I grew up um, a big fan of William F. Buckley Jr. and he started National Review when a Republican Eisenhower was in office, um, and he he didn't think that Eisenhower was conservative enough, and so he held his feet to the fire. But then he had all sorts of battles with uh, supporters of Ayn Rand and the Birch Society and such, and so he always was you know sort of having that conversation, that dialogue about what was within the orthodoxy and and was not. And so I think that. Uh, Unfortunately, we're at a time where I think that we do need a little bit of discipline in the movement. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, how? What do you think the best way to like institute that is? Like, I know it, it, we're not like a super formal movement where there's a guy at the top saying, "And this is what we're going to do." But like, in an ideal world, how would we handle that? We need a pope. <laughs> <laughs> we need a conservative pope. pope who can excommunicate people. Uh, I'm I'm willing to be uh, that person. Well, I, you know, I, 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 maybe not quite that extreme. What I'm thinking is, you know, um, in, in Suicide of the West, Jonah talks about how uh, civilization is just the conversation we have about. It. And for me, it's that, that ongoing conversation, the willingness to, you know, and frankly, it's the reason I wanted to do this podcast, is let's have the conversation and always be discussing the ideas about what is, what is acceptable, what's an interesting idea versus this is crazy, this is, you know, this is unethical. Uh, and I think it's just airing it out. Um, again, back to Buckley. I mean, this the whole firing line uh, viewpoint of let's let's go have an honest conversation about things. So, I don't think that we don't. I don't think we want a pope. I think that we just want to have people that are informed, that are that are not bashful about having the conversation, even if they don't have uh, sort of along the lines of occupational licensing. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't need a uh, we don't we don't need somebody who's been designated by the movement as you're in charge of party discipline. It's you know let's let's liberalize this and let everybody step in who's educated and be part of the conversation yeah I think you're right it's just like we need to have more exchange of ideas and fewer hucksters I get why we do though and I you know I have uh, a friend sent me a piece that I still have to read on the issue but like I get why we have hucksters and it's in part sometimes even the good people don't use integrity and the means to good ends like they, they it's they're not um they're not trying to do bad things but it kind of ends up that way like when we just like use bumper sticker conservatism to get retweets like you know it's for a good end but then hucksters use that bumper sticker conservatism to not do good things so it's we just have to be very cautious of the way we use politics and make sure that we're not doing it in a way where like hucksters can get in um and then from there it's just trying to figure out the um how you know how to exchange ideas in a, a productive way i mean i'm not even a perfect model of this for years i was like if anyone disagreed with me on unenumerated rights and their role in the Constitution, I would like tear them apart. 
And now I'm like, okay, I need to chill out because I'm in the minority here, and also I need to not be a dick about this. But um, it, it's it's a pat, you know, politics is a passionate place, so kind of figuring out the right place for all this stuff can be really hard. But I think it's just important to try, and like, I appreciate anyone who tries that on the left or right too, because like, you know, our streets bipartisan, and I love working with Democrats. Like Elizabeth Warren sent me a super nice note about uh, the USA Today op-ed I wrote about her bill, and like, I've attacked her a lot in the past, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe I need to be a bit less of a dick to her because like, that's really cool. <laughs> So I kind of, you know. <laughs> Let's not go too far. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to go too far. You know, um, getting libs to own themselves. <laughs> but like, um, I, you right. know. Well, we, uh, it's actually libertarians who believe in owning themselves, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Back to TPUSA for just a second. You know, I think my biggest concern with them is, is has to do sort of with demographics, if you will. Um, if you if you sort of look just within the Republicans, um, if you look at the baby boomers, they're very supportive of this administration. Then you look at the demographics of among Republicans of about 44 and younger, and it's a story. And I don't really feel the need to try to go change the minds of a 70-year-old who supports Donald Trump, and he's the greatest president of all time. But I do have some concerns if there's a prominent conservative organization that is basically turning themselves into sort of a voice for the boomer generation. And I just think that, you know, considering the demographics are changing so much, it seems like if we're, we're making them a little bit too prominent because I don't think that their message appeals to millennials and what are they, Gen Z? Um, I think so, right? Like, I always forget what comes after millennials. I thought it was <laughs> iGen, like the little iGen. I don't know. I, I'm not sure we've come up with a cutesy name for them yet. Yeah. With, uh, um, a big part of it is like, it, it's interesting. The conservatives both um, attack youth when they disagree, but fetish, fetish shot, fetish eyes. I can never pronounce that word. I have a lisp, as you can obviously tell. And like, there's just certain words I'm never going to be able to say. But um, I think it was Jonah who had said that, that we fetishize youth and we're like, um, oh my gosh, a young conservative, let's obsess over him, which is what happened to Charlie Kirk and countless other young conservatives who ended up turning into hucksters. Well, and with him, I know how TPUSA started, and there were some good people who started it, but he was always kind of this. Um, but we we need to like stop looking at youth for its own sake in that way, but at the same time, you know, talk to youth like we're intelligent people. Um, the stupidity is not something that's limited to any age or whatever. There's stupid people of all ages, um, of all everything. Um, and I think just figuring out how to talk to young people about conservatism um, and not ignoring them, which is something that I think conservatives have done too much. Not, And I don't mean it, like, again, to attack conservatives. I just think, like, there, there's, there's some, there's a lot of reasons why some young people think socialism is cool. I mean, it, it's kind of like if you guys watch King of the Hill, the episode where Bobby did a school walkout because he wanted to get a girl. Like that's sometimes what socialism is. Like, hey, the, you know, but it's, it's. I forgot who had said this, but it's like the axe body spray of, um, of thought because it's like you're using it to like seem cool and also get chicks, but it doesn't really work out, and it also doesn't work out as a theory. Um, but engaging youth, but not in a way like, oh, I'm going to be the next young conservative organization, but but really engaging youth. Like, And I, part of that's the, the whole city thing. I think a lot of um, the places where conservatives fail is just because we forget how politics works, whether cities or young people. It's a lot of the, like, 
we just need to show up, show we care, and show we have common ground. And I think that's the way to win people over. Yeah, let, let me just say one word uh, in support of ignoring young people. Uh, uh, and, and now I just turned 40 recently, so now I can embrace my crotchety old man uh, to the fullest. But so, you know, one reason I think that politicians or other folks ignore young people is that they don't vote, right? Old yeah. People vote, you know, uh, old people are there. Uh, they're, they're voting in... Your presidential elections and your midterm elections and your primaries and your local elections, you know, young people, I mean, they have other things, they have other priorities, right? You know, they're off having fun, uh, uh, doing whatever, living their lives. Uh, but it's only, you know, after they settle down a little bit and have a mortgage and kids and start to take perhaps a little bit more of a, a long-term perspective on things that you see this sort of increase in uh, voting and civic engagement, hopefully. Uh, so, you know, to, to to that extent, I think that, uh, you know, people, if, if a group wants to be taken more seriously, I think that's the, that's the first step that they got to do is they actually have to, they have, they have to uh, start voting. And if, if they don't do that, then, you know they're they're gonna they're gonna get discounted, and that's just the, the the way it is. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like I don't vote enough, and it's often because I'm pissed off at everyone, and I just get like very nihilistic. It's really dumb. Like as happy as I am, I'll just like get really upset about politics and just like go full Morrissey and be like, "What's the point?" And then <laughs> like I'll just go on Twitter and like nerd about like occupation licensing for twelve hours. There's a, a huge cognitive dissonance <laughs> there for me. Um, but yeah, we, we need to vote more. And I think, I don't know, I'm not sure if it would be good if we did, but like, yeah, I, I'm I not guess say, we should. Like, maybe, you know, some people uh, who don't vote, you know, maybe recognize that uh, the world is a, well, let me, I, I want to be careful about how I say this, because of course, you know, everybody, you know, the, the nature of our system is that if you're over 18 and you're not a, a felon in certain jurisdictions or whatever, you know, you have it's a sacred right to vote and participate and, you know, blah, 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 all of that. But at the same time, you know, if you don't know that much about the world uh, and politics and whatnot, uh, maybe that's something you w would want to do, too, before you start voting. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, we, we need to, like, learn more about stuff before we vote, but also, like, Older people also don't know lots of things when they vote. Like that's, that's not a thing. True. Yes, that like, is absolutely true. You we, you do hope that as you proceed further along the course of life, that you do learn something from the whole experience. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, a lot. There's there's a lot of folks at all age ranges that don't really seem to know a lot, at least uh, when it comes to politics and policy. Yeah, I mean, like, so many people are illiterate on, like, everything. And I, I really don't mean that as an attack. Like, that's just, people have lives. Like, if people were like me, like, nothing would get done in life ever because, like, everyone would just be nerding and not, like, eating and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, it works for me, thankfully. I found a place that will pay me to do that. But, like, most most places, like, that would be bad if everyone was like that. It, it's about just, you know, I, I, it's why I care about this, because I want to get government out of people's lives and stuff. Um, but it's it's not. It's everywhere, and it makes me really sad. <laughs> so sort of tying it together, a few of the themes. If, uh, 
you know, sort of in this age of the boom, the boomers in control of everything in the sort of the Trump era and sort of trying to move things to a little bit more of a libertarian, you know, free market type of arrangement. If do you think that the way forward to try to revitalize sort of, I don't know, sort of a conservative, conservatarian type of move. Do you think it's more at a grassroots level? And how do you square that with the idea that, you know, that, that conservatives and libertarians are doing particularly poorly in cities? Oh, that's a good question. I, I'm not even sure. I, I used to be more political and also more into the grassroots, but I haven't done that in, in a long time, which is silly. But I, I don't, you know, politics is just so often imperfect on every level. Like, we'll be like, oh, you know, the Democrats are doing so much better on digital than, than we are. But no, they're not really. I mean, we've kind of caught up and everyone's kind of bad. <laughs> um, it's just, the, it's, I feel like so often the determining factor in winning elections and winning hearts and minds is who's the least terrible at politics. Not even at a candidate, but like, just like as a candidate, but like who's not as horrible at like, the fundamentals of politics. So, so it's hard for me to think about that just because I'm, again, I'm really nihilistic about that kind of stuff. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, uh, I, I think that it's the, uh, the sort of the future opportunity, I think, is, is definitely more grassroots, if you're, particularly if you're looking at this as, um, the way I view it is trying to revitalize sort of the Reagan movement or Buckley conservatism, which sort of that blend of conservative and libertarian. I think it's got to be sort of from, you know, lower level government. And there's the challenge is, um, you know, conservatives haven't done well at the at the local level, at least in, like in terms of big cities. But I think there's some opportunities there. And one of the things that I'm particularly interested interested in is the idea of smart cities technology. Um, and the reason for that is it's, it's kind of like occupational licensing. It's something that you view independent of what you think of this particular administration. So people are willing to take that issue discreetly from what they view, you know, the, the administration's views on, say, separating families at the borders. They look at that issue by itself. And if you look at, say, smart cities technology, it cuts both ways. There's some policies that, and some technologies that you might use that would be um, that would help centralize government, which we wouldn't like. But there's other. Um, some of that technology might be used to uh, to steal a phrase from Stephen Goldsmith. Uh, make government faster, better, cheaper. It may, it dis, you know, I think one of his terms is distribute governance. Um, so make government a little bit more decentralized. And mm-hmm. in sort of a, in, in an age of Uber, where everybody talks about democratizing the uh, uh, the uh, the market, I think that type of thinking maybe might be a game changer if it's positioned the right way. Um, but I think that there's such a, um, I think we're at such a, a point in, you know, in our politics at the national level that it's going to be hard to get past sort of this Trump move, moment. And yeah. I'm, look, I'm looking for those sort of lower, lower governmental issues that people will have a conversation about one-on-one without always viewing th- things through the prism of Trump. Yeah. And, you know, there is room to, to move past the prism of Trump, but, like, when it comes to campaigns, like, everyone's always asking candidates what they think about him and stuff, and, like, th- there's just so much more to that, especially, like, it, with any president, they're going to annoy local politicians on various levels and stuff, you know, it, it's, I, I just, I mean, politics is so oversimplistic these days, whenever we're, like, putting freaking judges on 
a single axis graph, which we need to stop doing because that's crap. <laughs> and it angers me because, like, you can't put judges on a single axis graph. Like, oh, my gosh, when they put Kavanaugh and Kethledge as the same on one of these graphs, I'm like, are you kidding me? They're night and day on, like, a billion issues I can name. Like, oh, it pissed me off. But um, but that that's, like... We just want to pretend that you can, like, simplify politics to something like that. But at that point, it becomes meaningless. Whether, like, it's like, are you for Trump or are you against him? Or, you know, which, where is this judge on this single axis graph? Which makes me super mad. Like, it, I I mean, I don't know how to get past that, too. And I know that, like, maybe Twitter is not great for it, even though I love Twitter and, like, how we simplify everything. But I feel like there's, there's, there is a way to make it accessible without making it stupid simple. Like, we need to do the hard work of, like, of, of that communication. And I think that might be part of why I do so well on social, because I don't take out the important stuff to communicate. You know, I, I, I include it, but I make it accessible without making it stupid. Usually, I, I do stupid, too, but on policy, I try not to be too stupid. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, I hope I didn't curse too much. It seemed to be a reasonable amount. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. I guess I didn't curse enough. <laughs>